Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through to chapter 2, verse 11, the wonderful hymn. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then when I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Audrey. What a wonderful passage of scripture that we have before us this morning. Well, do you remember these bracelets? Do you remember those? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now the bracelets may have been a little bit gimmicky, but they represent a really serious principle for Christian living, don't they? In any given situation, uh, we find ourselves in, they prompt us to ask the question, what would Jesus do? Now imagine uh, we all took that principle seriously. Imagine the effect that would have on our lives, on our lives together, if each day we woke up asking that question seriously. It would be quite powerful, wouldn't it? Uh, But one of the problems we face uh, in doing that is, in the Gospels, we often don't have records of Jesus doing the sorts of things that we do, the sorts of situations we face day to day. And many of the things he did do, well, we can't really imagine us doing. Imagine I find myself at a wedding. Alex, 
the, wa- uh, the wine has run out. Well, here's the key to the communion cupboard. Don't tell the vicar. <laughs> Alex, we have 5,000 hungry people. Well, I'm pretty handy in the kitchen, but even I can't do that. That's why when we uh, come to the New Testament, we don't actually find this principle, but we do find something that's very similar. It's not trying to work out exactly what Jesus would do in any particular given situation. The principle is to follow the example of what Jesus actually did. And in the New Testament, there are two things that point us to that. The attitude of Christ in his incarnation and in his crucifixion. He's coming from heaven to earth and his sacrificial death on a cross. They're examples for us to follow. Uh, If you want some uh, references to follow up, try 1 Peter 2 verse 21 and 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. However, doing what Jesus did isn't doing these extraordinary things. We can't do them. It's following these examples of humble service. It's imitating his humility. And it's that life of humility that we're all called to this morning. Uh, Today we continue the theme that really began last week in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, Please take out your new sheets. You'll have the passage before you, a little outline of where we're going. That'll be really helpful. Uh, If you don't have it, Uh, In your new sheet, uh, get the passage up on your phone. So we begin with the theme, as I said, that Natalie so helpfully explained last week. Chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, have a manner of life, a way of living that is appropriate, that is fitting that is worthy of those who know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is not just an intellectual knowing. It's a way of life that follows for people who call Jesus Christ Lord. We also heard last week that it means standing firm in one spirit. That's a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Contending together as one for the gospel. In other words, it's unity in the gospel. And Paul will make it clear that that gospel unity only comes from gospel humility. Now this gospel unity and humility is really, really, really important. You can tell because before Paul exhorts us to it, he urges us with this most powerful motivation In verse one, have a look there with me. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he's saying, is there anything about being united to Christ, anything at all that has the power to move you? Well, is there? Well, for any Christian, for any Christian church, the answer has to be yes. If you have any comfort from his love, does Christ's love and mercy affect you? Does it comfort you? Does it? Again, the answer must be yes. 
if any common sharing of the Spirit. That is, do we share a common relationship with God here with each other through the Spirit? Do we? Yes, of course we do. If any tenderness and compassion, have we experienced the love, the tender mercy of God, the kindness of his grace through Jesus Christ? Yes. If we are a Christian, if we are a Christian church, the answer to all these questions is yes. Well, if that's true, if we have experienced these wonderful gospel blessings, then action must follow. If we know Christ like this, we must conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're gonna look at what that is, but before we do that, let's just pause for a moment. Just notice the motivation here. It's not guilt, is it? He's not motivating us with guilt. He's not giving us a list of rules to follow with a threat of fear if we break them. He's not motivating us by needs either. He's, He's not sort of putting before us some sort of payoff or reward. The motivation here is grace. He points us back to the gospel, the blessing we've already been showered with. Live lives worthy of the gospel, not to win God's favor, but because in Christ you have it. In him you have acceptance, you have his love. Friends, grace is the way that our Christian life begins and the way it continues. And we're like this woman here at the well that's on the screen. Uh, Each day this woman comes to the well drawing water uh, for her and her family that they need to live. Uh, To live lives worthy of the gospel, we need to come to the well of God's grace each day. Well, what manner of life will this be? What manner of life will we live if we've been transformed by the gospel? Well, verse two, have a look there. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Have one mind, have agreement, have a common purpose, a common spirit. In other words, be united. Notice Paul here is not talking about denominational unity. Now, these words may have implications for that, but that's not what he's talking about. The context is the Philippian church, the local church, St. Jude's, our life together. And notice he's not talking about unity for unity's sake. And it's not about having the same preferences and tastes and opinions, the same likes and dislikes. Paul calls the Philippians to have a unity of mind, of purpose and love in verse 27, chapter one, the faith of the gospel. Like a body functioning with different parts or an elite sports team driving towards the finals, this unity is in contending for the gospel together. And the reason he calls for unity is because the alternative is, well, 
catastrophic. Disunity is disastrous. It's disastrous whether it's in a corporation, a sporting team, or a political party, isn't it? And in a church, it wounds and embitters. It destroys relationships and faith. And it's an awful witness to the world because it contradicts the gospel message of love and forgiveness and the reconciliation and peace that Jesus died to bring. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, our one-bodiness. And it distracts us from the main game because instead of contending for the gospel together, we're spending our energy on battles inside. So sisters and brothers, be of one mind, of one love, of one purpose, of one spirit in the gospel. Well, what enables this kind of unity? What kind of conduct worthy of the gospel makes this gospel unity possible? Have a look at verse three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing must be done out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Paul's not just talking about our pride and arrogance here. The word for selfish ambition contains this idea of competition and rivalry. You see this kind of thing in play when men get together. I'm not sure how it goes when women get together, uh, for obvious reasons. But with men, there's often that kind of subtle one-upmanship. It's, it's subtle, right? Because if it's too obvious, that's just crass. There's that kind of name-dropping, that speaking to impress, uh, that, those understated slights on others. But we're joking, right? Projecting a, a successful image of yourself, that's selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Literally, the word for vain conceit is empty glory. Thinking of myself as wonderful, making myself the center of attention. That's vain conceit. Sadly, this self-centeredness is part of us all. Asserting my good over and above at the expense of others It's natural, but it's not the common mind and purpose we're called to, and it's not conduct worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, this is what conduct worthy of his gospel is like. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's what's worthy of the gospel, humility. Valuing others before ourselves, directing our attention to their welfare. And in context of this letter, particularly to those who we come to church with. Uh, Often people frame the Christian life in terms of having high moral values, right? And that's a good thing. Immorality is not conduct worthy of the gospel. 
But Paul says here the Christian life has chiefly to do with how we live with other people. Not how I live by myself, but how I live with you and how you live with me and how we live together. In humility. Sometimes we think that uh, being humble is being passive or quiet. But real humility is active. Real humility looks out for others, pays attention to others. Uh, Here's one definition. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status and deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Humility isn't being a doormat. It's not having low self-esteem. You see, real humility doesn't sit in the corner thinking, gee, I'm, uh, nobody loves me. It doesn't think how lowly and unimportant they are. That's not humility. That can easily turn into self-preoccupation. Real humility is a right understanding of the importance of others and the practice of putting their needs first. Uh, Rick Warren said this in The Purpose Driven Life. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Now you might have heard that attributed to C.S. Lewis. The quote is not actually his. Uh, Rick Warren was summarising something he said in Mere Christianity, if you want to follow that up. And so you can see humility, humility is not actually weakness, is it? It's actually strength. It takes real conviction and real courage to put aside your interests for the sake of others. I wonder, how did you come to church this morning? I don't mean by car or by bike or whatever. What frame of mind? Coming to church in humility is not coming for just for ourselves, for what I can get out of it, it's coming for others. To meet their needs, thinking, who can I serve this morning? That's humility, that's conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, why is this humility, this thinking of and serving of others, why is this a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, because that was Christ's way of living. That was Christ's way of thinking. Because that's what Jesus actually did. Verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this passage is one of the most profound and one of the most beautiful in the pages of the New Testament. But notice why this story of Christ's incarnation and his crucifixion is here. It's not just a statement of doctrine. It's not just a prompt to praise, though it is those things. It's here to show us how to live. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He's the one who, in being very nature God, was very nature God. He's, you see, Jesus, it says in Hebrews, is the radiance 
of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. In Colossians 1, he is before all things. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is equal in glory to the Father of the same being, yet he, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He did not use his status and his uh, position for himself. He was not like some greedy politician. He was not like uh, some kind of divine warmonger who was hungry and gl- for glory and power. No, verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. That's what Jesus did. He became human. Literally, it says he, he emptied himself and he became a slave. What status do slaves have? None. What do slaves get? Nothing. They don't get, they only give. Jesus went from riches to rags. The throne of glory to nothing. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus came and he died in the most degrading and demeaning way possible. As a criminal, God forsaken on a Roman cross. Well, why? Not for his benefit, not for his needs. He died for us, for us and our salvation, for the redemption of the world. For the King of glory is humble, the eternal Son of God is a servant. Now, some people might not be impressed with that kind of way of living. It's not exactly victory, is it? Impressive. The Romans weren't impressed. The Greeks weren't impressed. And many today in our world are not impressed. But guess who is? God. And he's the one who matters. Verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of his obedience, because of his loving humility, Christ was vindicated. He was justified in front of the world. He was raised up, exalted and crowned Lord. Lord of everyone and Lord of everything. No one is greater than Jesus. No name is higher than his. The glory and worship due to God is now also his. And one day every tongue shall acknowledge it and every knee shall bow before him. Christ our Lord, Christ our loving servant. Well, if you were with us last week, 
You will remember that Natalie shared this quote from a Bible commentator. The gospel is the retelling of the story of Jesus and the pattern of that story is meant to be replicated as the life pattern of Jesus' followers. Christ's story ends in glory, but his story was also suffering and his story was one of humility. And the Apostle Paul says here, that story in Christ's life is to be our story. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Give your life in humble service to others. As we finish, we're going to consider a few ways that we could do that. First is leadership. We need more leaders like Jesus. Apparently, and I haven't verified this, but apparently Vladimir Putin wears a cross. Gee, I wish he knew what it meant. I wish he read these verses. I wish that he was then moved and changed by them. I wish all our political leaders were. Imagine how different things would be. Let's pray that Vladimir Putin would read these verses and be changed by them. Let's pray all our political leaders would. Perhaps you're a leader. There's quite a few leaders in our congregation. Maybe you're a leader at work, in the church here or at home. Do you have influence and power in your life? Well, leadership can often be marked by selfish ambition, can't it? Vain conceit. By taking rather than giving. Not just out there but in church as well. But there is a different way of being if you belong to Jesus. In his kingdom, leadership isn't about perks and power, sending out people to get coffee for you. It's not about exerting control or collecting impressive titles, that rush of calling the shots. It's about humble service giving for the good of others before yourself. Friends, what do you aspire to in your leadership? Is it serving others? Is that why you're in it? And what do you hope to foster in your leadership? Is it humility? The cross is not just the pattern for leadership. The cross is the shape of a whole Christian life. That's what Jesus meant in Mark 8, verse 34, when he said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Empty yourself, deny yourself, follow my pattern of life. Take up your cross in sacrificial service. 
Sisters and brothers, we worship a crucified saviour. Just let that sink in. We worship a crucified saviour. One who made himself nothing and became a slave. He drew near to sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and drunks. People who offered him no power or leverage. And he used his power to serve others to the point of giving up his life. That's who he is. That's who we worship. Isn't that wonderful? And history testifies to those who followed in his footsteps, who shared his mindset. Saints who drew near to the lowly, who left all that was familiar and secure to share the good news, even unto death. And the church, our church, is full of saints who show up just like that, but maybe in slightly less spectacular ways. Saints who will hold your hand when you're you're sad and grieving. Saints who will pray over you. Saints who will let their plans be interrupted as long as necessary just to make sure that you're okay. Saints who will take in a foster child. Saints who will wear PPE for hours and hours. Saints who will go the extra mile for their students. Saints who will give up their lives to care for their kids and their parents. Saints who will let an insult slide, who will be quick to repent and lavish in forgiveness. Saints who are bedridden but still pray for missionaries every day. That's sharing the mindset of Jesus. That's the life we're called to here. Well, this passage has a lot to say about humility, doesn't it? But Paul first wrote it to the Philippians. He wrote it to encourage them towards humility in their relationships with one another, verse 5, so they would have unity in their life together. Well, I wonder what prompted Paul to write this particular word to them. Well, I reckon we get some hints of it later in the letter. This is from chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syncate to be of the same mind, hear what he says, the same mind in the Lord. It's familiar language, isn't it? It's clear there's a disagreement here in the church. Uh, It's not so clear what it's about, but Paul thinks it's important enough that he actually addresses it and names it in the letter. Well, disagreements will happen in church, won't they? over all sorts of things. We're people, after all. We have different personalities, uh, different tastes in music and liturgy, different tastes in what colours we think the building should be painted in, different positions on politics, social issues, different ideas about what we think the church should be doing. Lots of differences. And then you throw sin into the mix of all of that. I once heard church described as a, as a group of echidnas in a suitcase. <laughs> it's a good description sometimes. Maybe of some churches more than others. A disagreement is inevitable. But disagreement without humility can turn into division. 
And what a disaster for the gospel that is. What a disaster when you're trying to stand together for Jesus in the face of hostility and opposition that we would fight amongst each other. It's the last things that the Philippians needed. And so Paul calls them to share Christ's mindset of humility. Are there things that we disagree about? It's kind of a rhetorical question. The answer being yes, of course there is. But are there things that could divide us? Now, I'm not aware of any blood feuds here. But if there are people you need to go and reconcile with, please do that. Bring that before God. And this is what we're called to here. And if you need help to do that, maybe speak to a trusted Christian friend or you can come and speak to me as well. Well, what about our differences, our preferences? Well, we can't do much about them. They will always exist. We can't pretend them away, and we shouldn't anyway, because they're God-given. And our diversity has the great potential to enrich us. But without humility, that diversity, these differences also have the potential to divide us. Now, that can happen when we turn our preferences into principles, right? When we theologize, I like to say, our personal choices. When in my mind, what I like becomes what God wants. It happens when I like this kind of music becomes music in church must be like this. It happens when I find this liturgy becomes uh, helpful becomes this is the only proper way to do liturgy. And so it goes. You can insert your particular beef there. We can differ and we can discuss these things. But this behaviour isn't, this kind of divisive behaviour is not putting others' needs first. It's actually me shaping church in my image. The other day I heard a comment on how to act with humility in these situations. The person said, I asked myself, would God care about this? And if the answer is, well, not really, I try and move on. Great advice, because God does care about how we treat each other. Uh, Sometimes these differences will be issues of style and sometimes they'll be significant over deeply held social, political and theological positions. Now, I don't think we can pretend uh, in these issues the way forward is straightforward. Unity isn't easy, but we can still show humility. We can do that by listening to each other deeply, by speaking with respect, by using kind and gentle words, by being slow to anger, quick to repent and quick to forgive, by assuming the best of people, not the worst of people. And we can do that by focusing on what unites us rather than what divides us, by keeping the main thing the main thing by sharing the mindset of Jesus Christ, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Let me lead us in prayer.
Loving Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came and he died for the salvation of the world. And we thank you for his humble example in our lives, in our leadership, in our life together. Help us to be humble so that we might be united, contending for the gospel together, for Christ's glory. Amen.